you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, do you think it's possible to love your work? You know, sometimes I overlook hearing that in our intro, and that is still a phrase that sometimes makes people raise their eyebrows. Love your work in this economy, in this recession. What are you, nuts? We have to just do whatever we can to get by, be practical, realistic. Well, the interesting thing is, There have always been times like these. You know, the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun, and that's certainly true when it comes to economic ups and downs, changing work models, all the things we're experiencing today. There've always been these kind of challenges for people. So you hear people talking about the good old days, you know, people talking about this 2011, 2012 as the good old days, not too far in the future. Trust me. So the challenges we have today are probably not really that unique compared to what people have endured and gotten through, negotiated through in years past. I mean, talk to somebody who's 80 or 90 years old. You'll be hearing them talk about the depression and how tough things were then. And it'll make what we're dealing with today look pretty lightweight. I do believe that in spite of everything that's going on, you can find or create work that you love, work that's meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful. I don't think you have to just settle for something, for anything, just to get by until things get better because things don't get better, you get better. So focus on you getting better and trust me, circumstances and things around us will pale in their effect they have on us. Now, I'm not just saying it's a walk in a park. Obviously, it takes focused, determined action. But with that focused, determined action, you can, in fact, find the work that you love and, in fact, create the life that you love. Those things come not just because you happen to be lucky or in the right place or right time in history, but because you took action to put those things in place. Well, this is Dan Miller. If you're new to the 48 Days listening community, welcome in. We welcome new listeners every week for the podcast. This is a time each week where I take 48 minutes and just extract some of the most interesting questions that have come in during the week and then unpack them here a little bit in ways that hopefully we can all learn from so that it makes our path to success a little easier, a little smoother along the way. Here's some of the questions I'm going to be addressing this week. Dan, how do I obtain health insurance for my family if I were to give up a relatively secure job where I've been unhappy but do have health insurance? Dan, I've been out of college for one year and make $54,000 as an engineer, but I'm ready to make a lot more money and utilize all my skills. Dan, my wife and I are stuck and tired of working for the man and have decided to begin generating results-based income. That's a big concept. You hear us talk about that a lot on here, moving into being paid for results rather than time. Being paid for time is a relatively new work model in America and one that frankly, is pretty inefficient. Doesn't matter which end of the equation you're on, whether you're receiving checks, if you're getting paid for your time, then how do you, how are you rewarded for doing a really excellent job? How are you rewarded for doing the time, the the work in a shorter period of time? You're not, you're penalized. How are you rewarded for bringing new value 
perhaps increasing the company's revenue and profitability. If you're just being paid for your time, you may miss out on all of that. And it's also a short-sighted business model for any business to be paying for time. Now, I know that there's a lot of big transitions that are we're going through here, but believe me, companies are moving quickly toward results-based compensation rather than time because they know it's inefficient. Ultimately, you can't pay for somebody's time. You can only pay for positive results. Well, anyway, I'm getting into my response to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. Dan, I'm tired of, I'm making the transition from my J-O-B to being a full-time speaker to churches and other nonprofits. And the listener has a couple questions about that. Dan, I'm retired. Do I have a responsibility to share my experience or can I just be happy? Wow, what a great question. Reader referring to my multiple references on here about my negative feelings about the concept of retirement, feeling that you shortchange both yourself and the people around you. Well, here's a quotation for us to start the uh, start the podcast today. This comes from John F. Kennedy, who said, conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. The jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth, conformity. You know, this is interesting coming from a politician because in many ways, it seems like politicians want us to all conform that they, of all people, don't want us to express our individuality and our uniqueness. But here we got coming from a a politician, conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. So don't be too eager to conform. I mean, one of the things that our kids knew was the death knoll to any idea they wanted was to say, mom and dad, everybody else is doing it. Because my feeling has always been, if everybody else is doing it, it's time to go the other direction. What everybody else is doing is never the best. Well, we got some events coming up here at the sanctuary the next few weeks. A lot of you are, we're going to get a chance to meet for the first time. I'm looking forward to that. The right to the bank event we've got coming up August 4th and 5th. And then we've got another one, I think the end of September. We also have a coaching with excellence. One more event this year. That's September 15th and 16th. Be delighted to see any of you here. We do limit the numbers on those because of our facility here. We like to have people come out to the sanctuary, the converted barn on the back of our property that you hear me talk about, where we have not only an event center, but guest quarters and my office. It's a small building. It's not big, so we have to limit the numbers. Because we have so many people request coming to those events, Ashley, my daughter, realistically, being looking at the business side of things is why don't we just rent a larger facility and we can have more people come. And I'm telling her, Ashley, no, coming here is part of the experience. If we're going to share with people how writing and coaching have served me well, I want them to see the environment that I've worked in, not just learn some academic principles that we can teach them, but I want to experience the whole thing. And that means coming here to the sanctuary. So if you're coming to those, we welcome you. Look forward to meeting you, hearing about what you're doing on your own path to success. Well, William was the one who asked about insurance. He says, Dan, how do I obtain health insurance for my family if I were to give up a relatively secure job where I've been unhappy for the entire three years and 26 days of employment? I want to be an independent career life coach, but know my family has medical conditions, making it difficult to obtain insurance. Thanks for all you do. William, I've got a lot of information about insurance for the self-employed. And rather than trying to describe the different clicks through on our website, our website has so much information on it. Sometimes 
it's hard for me to tell you the clicks. If you just go to the search feature at the top of 48days.com, just put in there self-employed insurance or anything to that effect, insurance options for the self-employed. It'll take you right to a page that has a massive amount of information on there. Companies that you can research for insurance as a self-employed in person. Now, if you have pre-existing medical conditions, certainly that makes it a little more challenging, but it's not a deal breaker. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Insurance companies know that self-employed people are great candidates to have paying their premiums. Now, here's why. If somebody works for General Motors, they get up in the morning, they've got a scratchy throat, and they think, ah, what the heck, I'll just take the day off, I'll run by the doctor's office to make it legit, spend 10 minutes, and then I'll spend the afternoon fishing, you know, doing what I really enjoy doing. And somebody's going to pick up the tab for that, not only in lost work time, but also for the doctor's visits, exam, tests, and so on. But what if a person is self-employed, they get up in the morning, scratchy throat, you know what? They go to work anyway because they know they're in the driver's seat. They're responsible. They're committed to customers, to projects they want to complete. So they go to work anyway. They're much better candidates to have under insurance plans than people who are employees who expect somebody else to take care of them no matter what comes up. There's that subtle sense of entitlement there. So there are companies who are eager to have your business as a self-employed person. Believe me. I mean, that's where the opportunities are for insurance companies. They look for people like you and me to insure. So go through those companies, even with pre-existing or challenging medical conditions. I mean, I changed a few years ago to the plan that we currently have with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Joanne had some things in her history that made it very questionable whether anybody would want us. It wasn't an issue at all. We got covered. Now, we have an, an, H, an HSA, which is a health savings account. That's an option for self-employed people, and it is a wonderful, wonderful option. An HSA, you need to check that out. That allows us to put money in toward premiums, and then all the money we put in is deductible right off the top of our income where we don't pay income on that money. And then if there is a claim where we need to tap into that, it comes out of that account. But you can put money in there and accumulate money, excess funds in there, that continue to accrue tax-deferred. And that's the kind of thing that is an advantage of being self-employed. And we have a a high deductible and I have a high enough deductible that we never go over it. We've never used our insurance. Again, one of those things that insurance companies recognize, but it makes our premiums very reasonable. And we're accruing money in that tax deferred account by having an HSA. Well, Joby from Chesapeake, Virginia says, I want to start a dry cleaning delivery business. Not sure if this startup will be what I stick with. Should I just pick an idea and run with it to help tease out skills, strengths, and weaknesses in self-employment? Or should I wait until I have a clear understanding of the work I'm passionate about? Well, Joey, that's a great question because the implication is, should you wait until you know you have the absolute perfect idea where you're going to have nothing but success and go through and three years from now, you're going to be a millionaire? Well, none of us do that. I mean, you can't do that. That's foolish to ever think that. So the process of entrepreneurship, of doing things on your own, yeah, is one of trial and error. Now, this bears out why some of the statistics are so ludicrous and what they seem to be implying. I mean, we all hear those statistics. Gee, four out of five new businesses fail in the first five years. 
Well, four out of five new businesses that start aren't around five years later, but that doesn't mean it was a failure. Most of those people were entrepreneurs who, you know, somebody started a lawn mowing service and then they realized three years into it, boy, this is a pretty easy business to get into it. You know, we've got six new competitors in my little town that are doing that. So I've got great relationships with my customers. I'm going to start doing gazebos or stamped concrete or water features rather than just traditional, easy to get into lawn mowing. But how does that show up statistically for the government? Well, that little business isn't around anymore and thus they mark it as a failure. No, it was a stepping stone to something better for that business owner. And that's exactly the way it's going to work for you. Now, I would not just stick your toe in the water with something that you didn't really think through. When you start an idea, I think you ought to be willing to commit to that for two or three years without looking back. So yes, there is that sense of commitment. This is going to be a great idea, but yeah, don't worry about the fact that if you learn some things in those first two or three years and decide to realign, to tweak your business or to flip it, to sell it to somebody else. I mean, I've done that with businesses where I started, it had a lot of fun and then I uh, sold it to a couple of the employees and moved on to other things. You can go through that process. So it's a combination Don't start something that you don't think you really will enjoy and be successful at, but also don't be surprised if in the process you see some opportunities that are even greater than the one you started originally. Great question, Joby. Thanks. Chris says, I make $54,000 as an engineer. I enjoy engineering, but I also have other business interests and skills. I've only been out of college for one year, but I'm ready to make a lot more money, utilize all my skills, not just my technical skills, any suggestions. I'm also set up to do engineering work from home. Well, Chris, being ready to make a lot more money is a great starting point. Now, that doesn't guarantee anything. Check positions or check websites like salary.com. I've got a lot of these listed in the appendix for, for No More Mondays. C, are other engineers with your responsibilities making more than you are? Do you have a resume that clearly shows skills you have that go beyond just engineering? I mean, do a job search. Do a job search without burning any bridges with your $54,000 year job that you have now. Frankly, one year out of college in a position paying $54,000 is not too shabby. So don't burn any bridges there just because you want more. Do a job search and you can quickly find out what your real market value is. So beef up your resume with all those skills you have that, that complement and go beyond just engineering. Do a job search. If you get a shot at an $85,000 a year job, absolutely. You're ready to go. You can give notice where you are, and make the transition. But if you find out that most people aren't making any more than you when you're out of college with an engineer in an engineering position, then you're going to have to look seriously at, okay, what could you do on the side with your at-home engineering capabilities to perhaps complement your traditional job and make another $30,000 doing side jobs in engineering? That's another option. Tyler from Cleveland, Ohio says, Dan, my wife and I are sick and tired of working for the man and have begun generating results-based income. My wife loves and is gifted in art, and I, as a restaurant manager, enjoy building and running a business. In combining these two passions, we purchased a screen printing kit and would like to design and sell our own t-shirts and eventually other apparel for local vendors to then resell. 
This would lower our profit margin on each item and give us the freedom and flexibility and time that we ultimately desire. She would design and produce the product and I would set up vendor contracts with local businesses. Do you think this is a viable business plan or idea? Yes, I do. I mean, I certainly do. But you want to be selling more than just a commodity. If you just sell t-shirts, you'll always be competing for a lower price. And if you're just going to do printing for other people on shirts that they sell, then you are just providing a printing commodity and there is very little money to be made there. As an example, I mean, take what I do. I sell books. The people who print the books, I mean, I can buy my own books from my publisher for $2.43, a book that retails for $21.99. That's through my publisher with a 15% cost markup there. So the printer is going to actually have to purchase the paper, run the ink, have people in place to do the labor to print the book, and he's going to get about two bucks a book. Now his margins are going to be really, really thin because he's just printing it. He's going to make pennies. I mean, where I can buy that book and then sell it for 20 bucks, I'm going to make, you know, 17 and a half dollars on it. I mean, the money is in the selling, not in the printing. Don't put yourself in a position where all you're doing is just printing. It'll be a very, very low profit business. Figure out what is your unique selling proposition? What's your USP? There's a whole lot of people capable of printing t-shirts. What is it that you're doing? I mean, people who make a lot of money selling t-shirts usually have some unique image or logo or sayings that they're developing that they put on there where, you know, the t-shirts you're selling are just the vehicle for conveying a message. I mean, look at what the people that, um, life is good, you know, that trademark that little saying, I mean, they sell a lot of products, but it's just a, a vehicle for transporting, you know, transferring their message. Life is good. So you see it on mugs, t-shirts, hats, and all that. Well, the, the t-shirt is not what's valuable. It's the saying. So put yourself in a position where you're being compensated for witty sayings that you have or helping people develop or where you're actually doing the selling, not just being a wholesale printer or it'll be a tough business to really leverage and make money in. Jamie says, Dana just joined 48 days.net. Thanks for the resource. I'm making a transition from my job to being a full-time speaker to churches and other nonprofits with the emphasis being on leading the next generation from adolescence to adulthood. What kind of legal issues do I need resolved to make the transition? Do I need a DBA an LLC? What tax issues are there? Do I just treat myself as an independent contractor? Dan, as I say, as we say in Ireland, may the Lord keep you in his hand and never close his fist too tight. (laughs) Well, thanks Jamie for that. Now, your last sentence has a lot to do with my response to your question. As we say in Ireland, most of the things you talk about, do you need to have a DBA or an LLC, tax issues? Those are very pertinent to the country that you live in. So you need to be checking there, and I'm certainly not an expert on Ireland. On the front side, just on the surface of what you're saying, you want to be a full-time speaker. Yeah, you can do that as a sole proprietor. You can do that as you start to create significant income from that. I would say once you start to create fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year from speaking, then you ought to look at some of the other models that are available, at least here in the US. An LLC or an S Corp would be the two most 
likely ones that you would move into. But you can go a long time. You can perhaps never have anything but a sole proprietorship or just a DBA as a speaker. Now, I noticed that you joined Kent Julian's Speak It Forward group on 48days.net. That's a great thing to do. That group can give you more specific responses for your question than I probably can at an arm's distance like I'm doing. Russell from Lynchburg, Tennessee says, Dan, your comments regarding, now this is a really interesting question. This has to do with retirement. He says, your comments regarding the fellow who didn't need the raise, and then my response to that, that we have a responsibility to produce and be productive for as long as possible, struck an off-key chord with me. Now, in large part to your teachings, I left corporate America two years ago and have not found the desire to engage in a real job since I also don't need the money, don't need the income. So I'm, I'm not really retired because I'm busy every day doing things that I love. However, this concept has been on my mind since leaving the normal world. Do I have a responsibility to share my experience or can I just be happy? Need a minute to let that one sink in. What do you think? If you've accumulated all the money you need so that you don't need to be productive generating capital anymore, can you, do you have a responsibility or can you just enjoy the fruits of your labors and just be happy as Russell frames it? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I think I addressed this because somebody said that he really didn't need any more money than he currently had. He could live on $10,000 less should he turn down a raise that his boss was offering. And I responded that what you're compensated is not really just based on your raw needs. Otherwise it gets to be really gamey. If you've got a big mortgage and a car payment and you want to work at Taco Bell, it's not going to work. They can't pay you what they need at the same time. If you have an opportunity to be CEO of a multimillion dollar company, but you really don't need the money, should they not pay you? No, they should pay you what the job merits. What you do with that is another issue. Now, when it comes to retirement, and Russell, in response to your question, I think you have a responsibility to fulfill your purpose and calling. And if you're still alive, then I strongly suspect, and I'm pretty sure that you aren't finished fulfilling your purpose and calling. So if you have skills, I mean, we could take somebody like Bill Gates. I mean, obviously he could sit on a, on the bank of a lake somewhere and just, uh, you know, fish, watch the bobber pop up and down. He has elected not to do that. He doesn't need to make more money, but he's very busy doing things that make him a good steward of the money that he's been privileged to handle. And I see people more and more who are doing that. So yeah, I do think that you need to very seriously look at being a steward of the talents and gifts that you have. What are you doing with those to make the world a better place? You know, you should be going back to your own personal mission statement. What does that ask of you? What is it that you're doing that is helping you fulfill your personal mission statement? I don't think it's very responsible to just unplug, even when our own financial needs are met, and just be happy. Now, therein lies the rub. Personally, I think it would be very difficult to be happy if I were doing nothing but looking at my own navel. So I think the concept, the root concept here of being happy implies you're doing, you're using the skills and talents God has given you. Now, if you're using those in a way that 
position you as a volunteer so that you don't directly generate income. I mean, that's cool. That's fine. But there's certainly nothing inconsistent with engaging those in ways that produce significant income for you still, even though you no longer need it. I mean, retirement implies a whole lot of negative things that don't really relate just to money issue alone. It implies you were doing something you didn't enjoy doing it. You don't want to do it anymore. Well, that's a challenge no matter where you are in the path of life. If you're doing something you don't enjoy, then by all means, get out. But you should be doing something you enjoy and usually doing something you really enjoy that is fulfilling and purposeful generates income. If you no longer need it, fine. Be a funnel through which those blessings can flow to other worthy individuals and organizations. That's cool. But yeah, I have a problem with just unplugging, doing nothing, and calling that being happy. Ivan from Georgia says, one of the things that has impacted my life the most from 48 days is the wheel of life. Your description of how the pieces of the pie comprise your life, and if any piece of the pie is out of whack, the wheel won't roll right, has been ground-shaking to me. My question for you, since the pie, particularly the inner ring with the seven areas of life, shows up in the book, does that mean it's copyrighted? And I need to obtain your permit, permission to use it on my blog or any future consulting coaching I perform. And I'm referring to the inner graph specifically. I have my own way of describing the seven areas. Regardless of the answer, I'm telling everyone about the concept and directing them to your book so they can check it out. Now, what Ivan is asking about in 48 Days to the Work You Love, in the new revised version, uh, it's on page 55. I have what I call the wheel of my life. In the center section, there are seven areas where I think we need to be making deposits of success. To have a wheel that's balanced and have a life that I would consider successful, there has to be success in the financial area, social, family, physical, personal development, spiritual, and career. But it's clear that having success just in career and perhaps in financial as a result of that, but having no success in family areas, physical, spiritual areas, you know, that makes a very lopsided wheel and not one that I would want to model at all. So that's why I look at those seven different areas. Now, as an outer circle to all of those, I have then fulfillment of purpose, mission, destiny, and calling. Fulfillment of your purpose, mission, destiny, and calling come not just from having work that you love, but also from the things that you're doing socially, in your family, in personal development, spiritually, those areas are equal contributors to fulfilling one's calling. And then the very outer circle I have, how will I be remembered? How will I leave a legacy with a life well-lived? Now, in response to your question, Ivan, it, it tickles me. Yes, that is copyrighted by virtue of being in my book. However, was that 100% original with me? Uh, not a chance. I mean, I would never be able to remove the influence of people like Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Dennis Waitley and Napoleon Hill and Earl Nightingale and the list goes on and on and on. All those people had contributions to what I ultimately put into that wheel. I should probably acknowledge all those people there, but it'd make another book to include the names of people who have impacted me along the way. That being said, Am I going to come after you if you pass on that concept or that wheel to other people? Absolutely not. So is it copyrighted? Yes. Technically, it is. If you want to use it, be my guest. Have fun. I hope that you have the chance to encourage others, provide hope and inspiration to them, as I've had the privilege of doing and uh, 
I hope you many blessings and uh, rewards as a result of doing that. Charlotte says, I want you to celebrate with me. I've completed my classes for my bachelor's in business administration and management and will graduate on August 6th, which is also my 34th wedding anniversary. Yes, I was 60 years old in May and finally got a degree. Now to find an employer willing to hire someone experienced in internet and market research, ex-computer operator and ex-income tax preparer, customer service, communications oriented, positive, self-directed, 60-year-old with a great work ethic so I can pay these student loans. In addition to getting a job, I plan to write a series of books about my life experiences, Charlotte. Well, Charlotte, what a refreshing portrayal of where you are. And yes, I am totally 100% confident there are companies out there just waiting to have someone with your enthusiasm, your skills, your competence join their team. I mean, obviously, with the way you lay this out, you're not hanging your head saying, well, I'm 60, I know nobody's going to hire me. No, you're saying, hey, I just got a fresh degree here. I'm ready to go. I'm able to offer things I've never been able to offer before. I'm prepared. I have life experience that few other people can bring to the table. I'm a great candidate. You need to know it so we can work together to accomplish goals that are mutually beneficial. Wow. I mean, you're ready to go. I mean, there, there's no, there's no downside to what you're describing at all. Get out here, let people know you're a great candidate. So they want to have you on their team. Incidentally, if you want to, we, we've revised the the restrictions that we had on the little podcast link where you leave your answers. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We had that set at 60 words, and a lot of you were trying to figure workarounds to get beyond that. And I agreed that that's just too stinking short. I told Ashley, my daughter, and Missy on our web team, change that silly thing so that people can go to at least 150 that's almost three times as much. We've made that change. A lot of you have commented on that. So if you go to the podcast link at 48days.com and want to leave a question, it does not restrict you in the way that it used to. A lot more space there. And I welcome that as well as you all obviously are as your questions have expanded a little bit. Well, Ronnie from Houston says, I read that 48 days to the work you love in regard to resumes in today's time. Is it still better to send a typed resume and have it delivered to the hiring manager via the post office instead of sending out an email? Yes, 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 it is. If you send it via email unsolicited before you have earned the right it'll still look like spam and it puts you in a really weak position. So yes, still do that. Is it slower? Yes. Is it more expensive? Yes. Does it get better results? Yes. I mean, it's just easy to track those things. I know it's tempting if you are in a job search to just email your resume out to a million different people and you think it's just like throwing crap on a wall, you know, something's got to stick. Well, in theory, you're right, but in reality, you are not. I mean, there are people who have done exactly that. They emailed their resume out to hundreds of thousands of people, never got a job offer at all. And then they very carefully selected three or four companies and went through a reasonable job search process and got three job offers. I mean, it's that dramatic, the difference. So yes, you need to start with now. Now, of course, what I tell you to start with, you start with a letter of introduction, then a cover letter and resume, then a phone follow-up. In that, 
you have three steps and in that you get the power of repetition and that's what gets job offers. Here's another job related question, kind of the traditional one. We don't have a lot of the, those these days, but let me just insert it here as well. This comes from David in Plano, Texas. David says, how do I conduct a job search when I have a retention bonus, which is 40% of my annual salary plus a regular severance pay on the table? Now listen to the details here. This is a pretty cool kind of scenario. My employer is closing the office at the end of the year. My problem is when asked some variation of when can you start by recruiters, this comes up. It makes it difficult for me to apply for jobs. The worst part, however, is that all of this is taking a serious toll on my wife's confidence and trust in me. We've known about this since January 6th and none of my phone interviews have led to real interviews. All, she, all my wife wants me to do is apply for jobs, but I can't even do that. We have $113,000 in debt. Okay, now let me kind of break this down a little bit here. Uh, David, you said you've got a retention bonus. It's 40% of your annual salary. That means you know the office is closing at the end of the year. Now, you've known about it since the beginning of the year. So we've had 12 months here to prepare yourself. I mean, what a marvelous position to be in, knowing the exact timeline having six full months remaining in which to do a job search, but at the same time having a retention bonus and a severance package. Now, some of this, it almost makes me wonder if your wife is saying you need to get out of your job now because you know the company is closing. My recommendation is absolutely do not leave the job that you have now. When you have an opportunity for a 40% Retention bonus. Now, retention bonus is just that. I mean, it's an incentive that an employer has offered for somebody to stay on during a transition like this. So to get a 40% bump, I mean, that is not insignificant at all. Then plus, knowing that the company is going to close, it's not through any fault of your own. But when they close, they're going to give you a severance package as well. You would be absolutely foolish to walk away from that until the day they close. However, knowing that that is coming puts you in the driver's seat for creating your own transition. Yes, you should be interviewing now with companies, knowing that transition time is coming. In reality, when you're interviewing, if you're interviewing more than three months out, it's going to be a little tough for companies to take you seriously. So I would recommend that you are prepared to aggressively go into your job search. What would that make it? If you're going to the end of this, that would mean the beginning of October in this case. So the beginning of October, yes, you ought to be prepared to have your 30 to 40 introduction letters going out, then follow it up with cover letter and resume, then the phone follow up to put that in place, letting companies know that you will be available January 1st. Now, even if you had a month off in between, since you're getting this nice bonus and a severance package, you may even want a little time in between, but that would be reasonable. Start in October to do your job search, put that in place and then have a position ready to go. But by all means, stay so that you take advantage of the retention bonus and severance package. Esther from Kansas says, now, this is a really interesting scenario. Maybe, you know, some of these 
seem to me more interesting because they kind of scratch my itch, so to speak. And I'll share why that's true with this one. Esther says there's a very small, low budget motel for sale with 12 to 14 rooms, about two and a half miles from the college town where I live that is for sale. It's at the entrance of our small airport. It was built in 1956 and is in need of remodeling or complete rebuild. The asking price is $299,000. My vision for this property would be to rebuild it and make it into a small resort with a little treehouse cabins, much like I've seen in the tourist town of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, that was built in 2010. With numerous hotels in town, my thought would be to promote it as a retreat to the country, especially catering to the college families that frequently come to visit their children and alumni that return to town. And again, that town is Lawrence, Kansas. What are your thoughts on this business idea? Well, I love the idea of repurposing real estate, Esther. I mean, just this morning, Joanna and I were uh, having our muffin and tea together, and I'm looking at the front page of the little Franklin, Tennessee paper here. There's an old gas station that's for sale. And she and I were talking about all the things that we could do if we purchased that and just give it a new purpose. Actually, we were talking about how cool would it be to have a gas station where we did the kind of things that were done 30 years ago where somebody would come out and wash your windshield, check your oil, tell you it's really time for new wipers. Hey, incidentally, we have ice cream cones for a quarter today inside. I mean, can you imagine the surge of business you would get? I mean, how many ladies, I mean, Joanne, we joke about it. I'm not sure she knows how to open the gas cap on her own vehicle because she doesn't really care. Guess who takes care of that? Yes, I have her spoiled enough that I try to anticipate. I try to catch her vehicle enough over the weekend or whatever, where we go places together to always keep it filled up so she doesn't have to do that. Would she go to a station where they came out and filled it? You better believe it. I mean, I think there's a place for some of those old service things that seem to have gone away because we're more price conscious and more efficient in some ways. But you know how many people never check the oil in their car until there's a problem and then there's usually a major problem that needs to be done when you fill up the gas tank? Well, I, I think there's a place for some of those things that we too quickly did away with. And I would I have all kinds of ideas. Well, let me get off that and get back to your idea, Esther, about this little place. But I've always had a dream of buying an old motel. Matter of fact, I've got my eye on one right now and converting the rooms into small business offices. A lot of motels are on secondary roads roads that used to be major thoroughfares but now with the freeways are no longer used so they're just kind of in places that aren't trafficked highly but to have a motel and then have the central office it could be like a reception area for everybody that had businesses there where you could have a copier fax business supplies i mean i've always dreamed of doing that and i'm sure that i will one of these days is when the timing is right and I find something that really fits my dream, I'll, I'll do that. With your idea, I would make sure that it's in a remote enough area to position it really as a country retreat. I mean, if it's right on the entrance to an airport and just a little bit out of town, if that area is growing with more traffic, people may not seriously see it as a retreat area. You know, don't, don't try to repurpose it for something that won't fit the location. But other than that, I really like the idea. I like it a lot. Now let's just, just for fun, just run through some financial figures here. Let's say that you spend another hundred thousand dollars on remodeling. You set it for sale for two ninety nine, two hundred ninety nine thousand dollars. So you spend another hundred thousand dollars in remodeling. So you've got 
$399,000. If you finance that for 15 years at 4.5%, that makes a monthly payment of $3,000. But now you've got 12 units to rent out. Now with vacation rentals, you have the ongoing challenge of continuously filling those rooms. Uh, with, with my model, with office space, you know, I'm going to have people on one-year leases, perhaps longer. So if you had 12 spaces rented out at $500 a month, which would seem to be really cheap office space, that's going to bring in $6,000 a month. Okay, you've got a $3,000 mortgage, bringing in $6,000. That gives you plenty of margin above your mortgage payment. If you can make the numbers work on paper and have a clear business plan for what you want to do, hey, I say go for it. I mean, love the concept. I like it a lot. I'll keep you posted on when I get a little motel that I'm going to convert. Well, Jesse says, um, oh, he says, woohoo, kudos for the 120 or the 150 words. He's the one that commented on the increase in space to ask your question. Again, if you could just go to 48days.com, click on podcast, you can click on a place to ask your question. That's where I get all these questions. And we've expanded that from 60 to 150 words. He says, I have uh, three jobs, one of which I love, but I'm only on contract labor. Business for that seems slow. After listening to you and Dave Ramsey over the last past year, and year, two years, I know this is my passion. This company's big service is very similar to Dave Ramsey's plan, but the big difference is we actually do it for people. Using their money, we pay all their bills, give them some of their money back for living expenses like food and gas. Right now, I just take the information of people who have come in for help, put it in a spreadsheet and contact them. I get something for each one I do and a great deal more. If they sign up, how can I maximize potential clients? Well, Jesse, because of Dave's work, I know thousands of people who are fans of his and are doing things to help other people now with their finances, either leading Financial Peace University or working with people, helping them with their budgeting and planning as you're implying here. I think you're selling into a very difficult market, you know, to work with people who are already in financial trouble and then try to get a reasonable fee for your services, I think is tough. I mean, that's why most people doing what you're describing, do it as a ministry or as a, simply a community service of some time. So just be realistic about that. I mean, most people who call themselves financial planners are selling a product. So they're getting commissions on the products they sell, whether that's insurance, investments, mutual funds, and so on, rather than having a fee for service. And most people who just are doing financial planning for people who are really struggling financially can't make a living from doing that. Now, prove me wrong, be the exception to that. I'm sure there are, but that's certainly true in terms of generalities. So I'm not sure how you can just ramp that up and really be successful with that. Now, here's here's a variation on that. Here's kind of a, a takeoff on that that may, in fact, give a little insight into what you're asking. Eric from Fort Myers says, Dan, I'm an avid Dave Ramsey, Dan Miller hybrid, which is helping me tremendously get out of debt and find my entrepreneurial spirit. I've created an Excel spreadsheet that calculates your debt snowball and debt-free date based on income, debt, payments, budgets, and so on. It also helps keep track of bills and cash balance accounts. The site is debtsnowballcalculator.net, and my traffic is growing daily. Already 40 downloads of my free edition in six different countries in the last week. 
I have a free version with limited capabilities and we'll be releasing a Debt Snowball Calculator Pro that's not free on August 1st. I'm commenting on other financial gurus' blogs, utilizing 48days.net, YouTube, Twitter, reaching out to financial coaches and utilizing SEO optimization. Is there anything I can be doing differently? I just want to reach out and help as many people as possible. In your example, Eric, I mean, I like that a lot. At least this gives you the leverage of working, having something working for you 168 hours a week. So instead of just having a face-to-face service where you're sitting down with people and needing to be paid for that, you're not limited by just a few hours in the day. You have a financial snowball calculator going for you out there. People can purchase that at 2 a.m. in the morning while you're sleeping, pay a little fee, And instead of being limited to maybe two or three people a day you can work with, you could theoretically have two or 3,000 come to your site and purchase your calculator. So it has all the characteristics of a business that I really like. It still takes your empathy, your compassion for people who are struggling, who are just trying to get started, and it leverages that knowledge into something, a product and service where you have the upside leverage of going into residual income. Yeah. Hey, like it a lot. Hey, one of these days you'll be sitting there and you can just be uh, helping people deal with this. If I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a house. I would buy you a house. And if I had a million dollars, if I Well, hey, a great old song there. And give me time to glance over the rest of the questions here and choose what is going to be my last question for today. If if I had a million dollars, you know, I know that's not the goal for everybody, but you know, that's not an unreasonable goal, especially in today's economy. You know, what is, what is your million dollar idea? You know, could you really see that upside? I mean, I was, I was complaining yesterday to Joanne, uh, my wife. I said, you know, I feel like I don't have my hands around a tiger right now. I mean, I, I've got a lot of things in place that are working very well. There's no question about that. I mean, I'm, our product sales are really predictable. Our electronic profile sales are really predictable. And those are growing into areas. And my books keep growing and publishers keep coming around, you know, wanting to do new things and all that. But, you know, I, I really kind of have a hankering. I want to get a hold of a tiger. And I, I'm not sure what that is right now. But I want something that has a a really big potential. Um, There's a danger with me in my own personality of getting bored with things, even if they're successful. I have a history of sabotaging things, of walking away from things, of minimizing my uh, time commitment to things just because I got bored with the predictability. So I have to be very careful about that. And I purposely look for, okay, what am I going to take on? Frankly, I like a challenge. I like a challenge. That's why in people that I coach personally, I look for situations where there's no easy answers. I look for situations where it seems that there is an impossibility confronting us. Those are the kind of things that I like. If somebody needs to just polish a resume, go out and do a job search, get another job. I mean, I, I really, it, that doesn't energize me. I have very little passion for that kind of process. It's very doable. We have a lot of competent coaches that help people in that. I look for situations where like right now I'm working with a young physician, 36 years old, 
very clearly fulfilling his parents' expectations, not his own. He's on heavy medication for depression, needs a new life, and yet he has an MD and some other initials behind his name. How do you redirect, turn from that? That's a tough situation. That's exactly the kind of thing that I want to jump in. I like those challenges. So I'm looking for that big challenge. I want that million-dollar challenge out there and um, always looking for that. And I know a lot of you are doing the same thing, and a lot, some of you already have identified what that's going to be for you. Well, let me grab this one. This is Adrian, who says, I'm 42 years old. I'm in a place of extreme aggravation and frustration. I've been trying to get into healthcare field for years. I received a graduate cert- certificate in managed care in 06, and I'm currently working on another certificate in health information management. Even with the certifications, no doors are opening. Now listen to this. I've applied for receptionist, administrative assistant, and customer service positions to get my foot in the door and nothing. I've had my resume done over and over because uh, the bulk of my experience is in telecommunications. What am I doing wrong? I've gotten some education in this new field, so on and so on, and nothing. Please help. But let me just cut to the chase here. I don't want to sound callous in any way, but... If you've applied for positions as a receptionist, administrative assistant, customer service to get your foot in the door and nothing, more degrees and certifications are not going to change your success. You're going to find that in healthcare, there are no more opportunities than the fields you've come out of. You need to find out why people don't want you on their team. This is not a matter of more degrees to impress people. If you've applied for a bunch of positions as you have in different fields as you have and nothing. The, the, the message is very, very clear. It's not your resume. It's not your degrees. It's not your experience. It's not your age. It's none of those. It's you. And you just have to be realistic. And this is the, the quickest way to change results you get. Why is it that people don't want you on their team? Now I've worked with people where we've discovered some very simple things in a matter of a firmer handshake, better eye contact, a bigger smile, more enthusiasm. I mean, those are things you can do. You've got to get to the heart of it. Why is it that people don't want you on their team? And it's not because of you not having enough degrees and more degrees is not going to change your success. I want you to get your hands on a copy as quickly as possible of how to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie, written in 1935, released in 1936. So it's nothing new and revolutionary. It's solid principles. How to win friends and influence people. It's not how to manipulate, but it's how to make yourself a magnet so people want you on their team. My Wednesday morning Eagles group is going through that book right now. We are having profound stories every week about mature, grown, adult business people who are already successful, who are blown away at the results they're getting by simply implementing some of the simple principles in there. That's what's going to change your success rate. It's not going to be getting more degrees. Well, that's a topic for we could extend for an entire session, but thanks for your questions, for being part of the 48 Days community. I know that you are discovering your million dollar ideas out there, that as you learn more about yourself, look inward, understand how God has uniquely gifted you, you have more and more ability to find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Have a wonderful week.